Your attendance today suggests that uh, you may have an interest in God and a desire to grow in your relationship with Him. Uh, of course, there may be some who attend uh, for other reasons because of maybe pressure from their family or guilt or desire to gain God's favor in some way. Uh, but most of you, I think, are here probably for the right reasons. I think you probably generally desire to grow in your relationship with God. You, you want to worship with others who have the same kind of goals in their life. And we know that worshiping together, sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's Word is something that uh, we're supposed to do. It's something that the Bible says we should do. So if you want to grow spiritually, uh, you attend church and hopefully that church will have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Um, as we continue to travel down the path of life following Christ, there, there are going to be spiritual markers, if you will, that either confirm our faith or give us reason to be concerned. Um, that might reveal some spiritual apathy or a spiritual drift of some kind. The consistency of your attendance at church is one of those markers. Many times evaluating um, your spiritual condition is way more subjective than just whether or not you attend church consistently. Um, many like to ignore the necessity of introspection, and, and yet I think it's clear in Scripture that we must examine our spiritual condition regularly to see if we, in, in fact, are growing with Christ and growing in Christ. Uh, James the book we are currently studying is a book that will help us with that introspection. James is going to move past the subjective nature of uh, spiritual health analysis to concrete points of authenticity to help you, to help me, see whether or not what I claim to be true about my relationship with God is in fact true or not. Today's sermon will be the first of many that I pray that the Holy Spirit will use to establish the genuineness of your faith. And beyond just establishing it, uh, to, to, to strengthening it, to, to bringing you joy in it and making you useful in your walk of faith. That's what I think the book of James is going to do for us at Sun Valley Church. I hope it will for you. I pray that it will for you. As we begin this study... Uh, of this very practical and helpful book. I want to help you kind of see the lay of the land of the book so you can kind of give an idea, uh, have an idea of where we're going and how we're going to get there. Um, I want to show you James's strategy to help us navigate these tests of authenticity. So to do that, I'd like you to turn with me to James chapter 3, James 3 verses 13 through 18. What I want, I want to what I want to say here is that this is really the peak of the book. The controlling theme of the book is revealed here. And James uses what I'm about to read to you to unpack each of the main sections throughout the book, starting back in verse 2. But this is the peak of the book. So see if you can follow what he's saying. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So <clears throat> that particular little paragraph in the book of James is the controlling theme of the entire book. In that paragraph, we see there's choices to be made, either to follow God's wisdom or man's wisdom, God's ways or man's ways. And then in the following section, verses 4, 1 through 10, James challenges us, his readers, to show themselves either as a friend of God or an enemy of God. You see that there in James 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have a choice to make, James is saying. We will either show ourselves to have an authentic growing faith or not, depending on what we choose. To follow God's ways or man's ways, God's wisdom or man's wisdom. So these choice between two opposite behaviors is stamped on every single section of the book of James. Um, in, in relation to organization, we can identify almost every section with the words, my brothers. Turn back to the first chapter. My brothers, <clears throat> they begin each new section, those words, with a command that followed. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. That's a command and an address. Every single section um, starts in like fashion. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived. There's a command, and here's the marker, my brothers. Keep going. Look at verse 19. Know this, my brothers, that let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So there's an address to his brothers and a command to follow. That's how he lays out the entire book. And each of these commands is a decision whether or not to follow God's way or man's way throughout the entire book. These are tests of the authenticity of your faith, of your willingness to follow God's way versus your own or the world's. And so the main thrust of each, sec each section is in agreement with the overall theme of the letter that I read for you from chapter 3. It's a call to readers to follow God's viewpoint, which is wisdom from above, versus man's viewpoint, which is not wisdom from above. The willingness of the readers to choose God's wisdom and God's way over man's wisdom and man's way are the tests of faith that we're going to be unpacking every single week. The first major section, back in chapter 1, is verses 2 through 15. Notice it begins with the address to my brothers and a command. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. That's a command and address to us who are in the faith. And then this particular section, verses 2 through 15, has four subsections. Verses 2 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, and 12 through 15. And you can see a new section begins in verse 16 because he has another command and then the address to the brothers. You see that? Um, and then, of course, this, this subsection that we're looking at today has got four divisions, and we won't be able to cover them all today, but I just wanted you to see the layout of the book. So as we move forward, you'll see, okay, here's what James is doing. Here's what I need to focus on. And then we kind of have some, some path to follow. So let's look here at verses 
2 through 15, James chapter 1. Let me read it for you, just so that we're all on the same page. It says this, after the introduction of verse 1, he says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. Uh, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So there is the first section of this book. And like I said, we're going we're gonna to take a, a few weeks to uh, get into the details of those things. But the first is verses 2 through 4, and that's going to be our focus today. And you'll notice in chapter two, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that he begins to speak about trials. And this being the first test of authentic faith. How do you view trials personally? Well... I've made three points in your outline. The first is this, inescapable trials. Trials are inescapable. God doesn't want us thinking that the Christian life is an invitation to an easy life. Uh, we, we should never try to sell Christianity by promising a better life when we share our faith. That is always a bad idea because what happens as soon as they discover that it's not the case? They associate their experience with your sharing of Christ and think it might just have been false. And so that is not the idea. No, everyone encounters trials, um, and, and becoming a Christian doesn't change that. Tri trials are the consequence, as we know, of the fall of mankind into sin back in the Garden of Eden. They, they brought trials with their sinful decision to, to follow themselves instead of God. It says in Job 14... Verse 1, man who is born of woman, and how many of that does, how many of us are included in that? All of us, right? We're all born of women, is few of days and full of trouble. So the idea of, of trials being uh, able to be missed is a pipe dream. All of us will experience trials to one degree or another. Christians are not exempt. You remember what Jesus said in John 16? I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. Just expect it. Following Jesus means that you're going to have difficulty. And it's not just, it's everybody. Not just, you know, Christians here, of course. No Christians are exempt from everyday trials. In fact, I would say that we have the added burden of the world's distaste for Christ to deal with. Jesus said in John 15 that if he was persecuted, 
we can certainly expect the same kind of treatment. Paul said this same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just coming to Christ isn't an escape of the reality of trials. James's major emphasis in the present text, verses 2 through 15, and I would say even throughout the entire letter, is that if a person's faith is real, if it's genuine, it will prove itself especially during times of trouble. That's when faith is discovered to be true or false, authentic or not. Faith that is reliable only when things are going well is, is not saving faith. I mean, what would you think if someone says, hey, that bridge is safe, but don't drive across it? You, you would say, something's wrong with the, the bridge. This is the kind of very dangerous faith because it deceives those who possess it. That's why this book is so important for us. That's why testing of your faith is so critical. To see if the bridge is trustworthy. To see if your faith is real. So when you've been in church for a while, you see this from time to time. People will come into the church and be all excited, want to get connected, want to join a small group, want to sign up for some area of ministry and I personally get excited when I read those kind of things and hear about people wanting to really get plugged in. Um, but many times, unfortunately, with this kind of enthusiasm um, comes disappointment. If that person encounters some kind of trial, maybe disillusion takes over, disillusionment takes over. This is the kind of faith that Jesus described in his parable of the sower, of the seed. You remember those? Uh, he mentions this, this uh, farmer going out and spreading seed and some of the seed fell on rocky soil, and some of the seed fell on uh, thorny soil or soil with weeds. And the, the seeds that fell in those areas grew up quickly, but they were choked out because of the bad soil or of the weeds that were present. James shows us that, that when faith is just an empty profession, not based on firm convictions of divine truth, when fire is encountered, that fire of trouble will burn up that false faith every single time. The cares of life, as Jesus said, will choke it out. But where there is true faith, on the other hand, James will tell us, affliction will lead us into deeper thought of one's real condition. And it, that, that trial will actually free the heart from self-deception and from self-righteousness. For, the, for those who possess authentic faith, trials lead to earnest prayer and, and the sustaining grace obtained through the trial actually strengthens and enlivens our faith, brings us hope. You know, you still might be sitting here thinking that you are going to some way avoid these traumatic experiences, these trials. You might escape with few or none. Well, I, I want you to look closely at the word when in verse 2, it's an important word in the Greek, it's hotan, and it's very important. It, it, it does not have the idea of possibility, it has the idea of inevitability. When, not if, trials come. And notice that he speaks of trials uh, as though they are synonyms of testing of your faith. Do you see that in verse 2? Kind of all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith... So they're synonyms. It's actually a neutral word that can have negative or positive connotation, depending on the context. 
And then he says these trials are of various kinds. Um, so are the tests and trials that we read of in verses 2 and 3 only difficult circumstances? Is that the only kind of trials that's being mentioned here? I want to help you to see that it's not the case. No, um, it, it's not just difficulty and hardship that tests our faith. Our trials are trials, it says, of various kinds, which means they're multicolored trials or trials that come in all shapes and sizes and degrees. It can be physical, mental, emotional, internal, external, positive or negative. That's what we can encounter. That will test the genuineness of our faith. Your test could include a bout with cancer or a financial windfall. You said, I want that test, right? I want that test. I think I could be joyful in a financial windfall. Well, many people have actually encountered the trial of financial windfall and failed. Have you ever read of the results of people who win the lottery, for example? Uh, it's not a pretty story. Um, Paul said that, a, that finances have actually uh, been the source of shipwrecked faith for many. Financial fortune has led so many to walk away from God, to walk away from church, to walk away from, from faith. So you may want to be careful what you ask for and what you think you might be able to rejoice in. I want to suggest that you may be able to survive the trial of poor health or a rebellious teenager more than you'd be able to survive the test of financial blessing. So let's look at the second point. How does God redeem these trials? I mean, they're negative for the most part, and the others we don't even think of as trials, the positive ones. How does God redeem them? How does God use them? What, what, is, what is the purpose? What do they produce? Again, look at verses 3 and 4. It tells us that God actually uses trials. He redeems trials from being useless and unnecessary by producing something in us. What's it say it produces? Steadfastness. And when steadfastness has had its full effect, it says you're going to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I like that. I, I want that. So I think we're seeing here right off the bat that if there's no trials, there's no growth. That's what James is saying. So there actually is a point to suffering. There is a point to these trials that we're facing on a regular basis. In John MacArthur's um, commentary on James, he lists eight purposes for trials from Scripture that I thought you would uh, like to have. So when you're going through things, you might want to refer back to this list um, to give you some confidence that God is actually up to something. The, the first is this. The first purpose of, or biblical purpose for trials is to test us. To test the strength of your faith. Is it real? Is it strong? Is it weak? You know, we may prefer not being tested, but, but how will you know where your heart truly is if you're never tested? Do you really want to assume everything is okay until the judgment seat? No, I don't. When you encounter in trial a trial, how do you respond? Are you bitter, angry, complaining? 
We see God testing people throughout the Bible to expose spiritual weakness, not to make their life miserable, but out of his mercy and grace, he wants us to evaluate where we truly are before we get to the judgment seat. That's mercy. That's grace. And when we fail a test, it doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean we have an inauthentic faith. It may mean that, but it may also mean we're just weak and need to grow. It wakes us up. The second purpose is to humble us. To humble us away from self-sufficiency. You know, we are, by nature as Americans, self-sufficient people. We don't like people helping us with anything because we can do it. Uh, That's not necessarily a biblical attitude. Um, This happened to Paul, if you recall. It's why God gave him the thorn in his flesh and said to keep me from being conceited. You know, pride is is a deceitful thing. Most of the time we don't even know we're proud about something. Sometimes we do because it's so obvious even to ourselves. Usually it's obvious to everybody else around us before we figure it out. But it's deceitful. It, It tricks us into thinking that things are fine when in fact they're not. Thirdly, to wean us from worldly things. You know, we have uh, a real propensity to become comfortable with worldly things. And getting comfortable with worldly things has a way of distracting us from God. Have you ever noticed that in your life? The more comfortable you are with worldly things, the less interest you have on heavenly things. We, we can become more dependent on our education than God or our finances than God, on our relationships with people than God. We see Jesus testing his disciples in this very way when feeding of the 5,000. You remember this in John 6? Jesus says, I wonder how we're going to feed these people to Philip. And then Philip says, well, we don't have enough money to buy. I mean, we don't have the means. And it says that Jesus was testing Philip. He wanted Philip to determine whether or not God could do this with or without worldly possibility. He did this to Moses. He did this with Abraham. He did this with David. And he does this with you and me. He wants to wean us from a dependence on worldly things. Fourthly, to woo us heavenward. You know, trials have a way of souring earth and sweetening heaven. That's why when people are on their deathbed, they say, I'm ready to go. Romans chapter 8, Paul said this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this earth, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in heaven. Earth sours because of the difficulties here, and that sweetens heaven to woo us heavenward. If this life were our best life now, why would we ever desire heaven? Next, fifth. The fifth purpose of trials is to reveal what we really love. What is it that you truly love, that you truly value? Do you truly value God, a relationship with him? Do you truly value God's people? Do you truly value God's word? Well, the, the purpose of trials is to reveal that. The authenticity of your love. Remember Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac? That was a test of value. 
Did he value God more than Isaac, his only son? Luke 14, Jesus says the same kind of stuff. Do you value your family over me? If so, you can't follow me. Do you value your things more than me? If so, you can't follow me. So it reveals, the testing of our faith reveals what we truly love. Next, to teach us to value God's blessing. Trials have a way of helping us value what's most important. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? When you're going through difficulty, everything becomes real clear on what's important, right? Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're not so interested in talking about, you know, splitting hairs on politics or, you know, the weather. It clears up things for us. It teaches us to value God and, and important things in life instead of mundane things. Seven, to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith for greater usefulness. In order to be more useful in God's hand, you need to have a stronger faith. And this is exactly what trials are designed to do. And I think here's where I can say that, that God has a great plan for you. You say, wait a minute, what, what if my plan includes death? That's not a bad plan, right? Everybody's going to die. <laughs> You're not so confused about that, are you? Everybody dies. So God's plan goes on both sides of death. God has a great plan for you if you are in Christ. And if his plan includes a long life here, praise him. But wouldn't it be great to be useful while you're here? That's what trials do. They strengthen our faith for greater usefulness. God has you here to use you in the lives of others for his glory and their good and, may I add, your own joy. This is closely connected to the next one, but let me just ex explain this. Be before you can be supremely useful to God, he needs to weed out a few things and shore up some weaknesses in your life. How does he do that? By way of trial, by way of testing. A.W. Tozer said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And it's not because God enjoys hurting people. It's because God enjoys using people. This blessing of being useful in his hands is what happens when we go through difficulty. I know I'm a better pastor now because of certain things I went through in my life. And then the eighth is, of course, to make us useful to others by going through trials. As I said, they're very closely related. Now let's look. I want to... I want to get to our final point here on navigating trials. How, how am I going to navigate these things? Because it seems um, like it might be a dangerous path. Uh, how can we experience trials in such a way that actually accomplish God's purpose for those trials? How can I do this and, and not lose my faith? Or at least not my joy? If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you've come across a character named Pliable. And Pliable came to Christ with enthusiasm, but with a wrong perspective. He thought that the path to the celestial city should be an easy one, um, only to discover hardship. He found himself in the slough of despond. Do you remember that? And he got discouraged. And he ended up saying, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, then forget it. And he got out of the slew of despond and went back to the world from where he came, revealing 
That trial in the slew of despond revealed the authenticity or lack thereof in his life. How are we going to navigate trials so that isn't our result? So at the first sign of difficult, we don't throw in the towel and head back to the world. Well, I want to show you some ways to navigate and make the most of trials from the text. The first full section here, of course, deals with this, um, verses 2 through 15, but we're going to only look for navigation tools from verses 2 through 4, all right? Um, we'll pick up the rest of them in the next couple of weeks. But first of all, we see in verse 2 something that's, that he shouts at us. He commands us, in fact, and that is a joyful attitude. You know how you're going to navigate trials? It's by adopting a joyful attitude. That is a must. This is a command. Count it all joy. And he commands it because it's not a natural response to hardship. It's important to see that this command isn't just asking us to bear down, try hard, and never quit. Grit your teeth, put your nose to the mill, and go for it. No, that's not what he's saying. He adds the word all. Do you see that? Count it all joy. Why didn't he just say count it joy? Because then we could say, we'll just bear down, try hard, and never quit. But he says, all joy, complete joy, pure joy, some translations have. Real joy is his point. <laughs> not fake, not make-believe. No, real joy. It means that our attitudes and trials, if we're going to examine the strength of our faith and make the most of our trials, must reflect a fullness of joy, a complete joy, a pure joy. G James is saying that a genuine Christian, when facing trials, will experience and exude contentment, peace, and real, actual joy in trial. This attitude is something <coughs> excuse me, that God grants to all those that he has regenerated. That's why it's a test of true faith. God grants this kind of attitude to his children. That doesn't mean that every Christian is stellar in their performance in this category. It just means that the possibility is there. This attitude is only really possible to those who actually know God. Naturally, we respond the opposite way, don't we? And even as Christians, we find ourselves tending that direction. That's why this is a test of authentic faith. This commands means that complaining about a trial is always wrong. For a Christian. Complaining about a difficult circumstances is always wrong for the Christian. Remember, Paul said this to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things, not some things, not just the good things, all things without grumbling, without complaining, without arguing. And so we could say that road rage is a sure sign that faith is seriously in question. <laughs> things aren't going my way. That guy cut me off. I Ooh, I'm going to catch up to him and let him know my mind. You know, <laughs> Paul commands us to do everything without complaining, without arguing, without grumbling. Because complaining really is just another way to communicate your anger and dissatisfaction and resentment towards the author of your circumstances. Right? 
God always has a specific purpose for our trials, so our response to them is joy because of what they will accomplish or produce and how they will bring glory to God and joy to us. We, we need to be careful not just to put on a mask, as many of us are really good at doing and pretend to be joyful. We need to actually look in the mirror and examine whether or not I am truly, fully, completely pure joy in this trial. You can be honest with yourself, right? God, God has commanded us to be joyful. And since he commanded us to be joyful, it is actually possible to be joyful for those of us who know him. Even if that possibility is only realized through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it yet is possible for you to be joyful in difficulty. Now, being joyful, of course, of course, doesn't mean that we're giddy and walk around with a goofy smile on our face at funerals or in the unemployment line. Uh, it means that we have a, a settled confidence and peace, knowing that God is in control and that whatever we are facing is designed by him for our good, for our joy, and for his glory. But we're not pretending that what we're going through isn't significant, we're not trying to hypnotize ourselves into joy. I think we're simply taking God's view on our circumstances. We have decided to believe what God has said, that, that he has a beneficial purpose behind this trial so I can actually be joyful even if my face can't produce a smile. The more we go through, the more we're drawn to Christ. I don't know if you've experienced any kind of significant difficulty. When it happens with me, I find myself in prayer, amazingly enough. I find myself searching the scriptures. I find myself pursuing Christ and fellowship with other people who are pursuing him. That's what happens to me when I go through trial. And I think that's by God's design. That is what he wants us to do. That's how he wants us to live. Pursuing him and loving the saints, that's what he wants. You remember Jesus, he, he demonstrated joy in the face of trial. It said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You remember that? The apostle Paul in, in the Philippian jail, he and Silas were singing and rejoicing in the midst of serious pain and trial. Not because they had hypnotized themselves, because they were lying to each other. No, they, they really believed it, that God had a point here, an intention, a purpose for their hardship. He said to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that means serious life-emptying experience. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul knew what God was up to. He had God's perspective. At the end of his letter to the Philippians, by the way, which he wrote from prison, and his, prisons aren't, his prison wasn't like our prisons, no TV and racquetball courts. It was a dark, deep, damp dungeon. From prison, he said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You see, Paul and Silas believed God's promises about his love and about his sanctifying care, about his sanctifying purposes in difficulty. 
they actually believe what God said. God's up to something good here. I can't tell what it is right now, but it's going to be good. That doesn't mean they didn't experience real significant pain, hardship, and even discouragement, despair even. But they knew behind it all was a loving God who had a genuine beneficial purpose behind all that they were experiencing. They valued God's view in their trying circumstances. Warren Wearsby said this in his um, commentary on James, our values determine our evaluations or how we view things. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter, not better. Job had the right outlook when he said in Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come out as gold. Friends, if you cannot rejoice in your trials, it simply means that your values don't reflect God's values, that your perspective is not God's perspective, that your wisdom is earthly, not heavenly. It means that you're not seeing things simply as God sees them. And this means that you probably don't believe his promises about your trials. This means that, that you have something to work on. That the testing of your faith has revealed some weakness. Go to work, is what James is saying. We should have Job's attitude that we heard of this morning from chapters 1 and 2, but this is from chapter 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Oh, to have that attitude. So the first navigation tool for successfully navigating the trials of life is a joyful attitude. The next is seen right below that. In verse 3, it says... For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is simply a right understanding of what God is up to. So you want to navigate trials well? You want to get the most out of your trials? Work on having a joyful attitude and a right understanding of what God is up to in your trials. James says, you know, you know this because you've experienced it. Jesus said this in Mark 13, 28. He said, we can know that summer's coming because the leaves are growing on the trees. You know, you wouldn't think someone would have to say that, but it's so obvious. We, we all know summer's here because, hey, leaves are on the trees. James says the same thing happens in our trials. We know God is up to something. You know that these things produce good things in your life. You know it. I want you to think back on a time in your life when you were going through a particularly hard time. Have you got it in your mind yet? Something that you went through that was particularly trying? You probably don't have to think too long to remember something good, very good, that came out of that season of suffering, do you? It's, it's right there in the forefront. When you went through what you're thinking about right now, it has produced something positive in your life, and you can identify it like that most of the time. I acknowledge there are times when it's hard. 
but usually the further away from the trial you get, the clearer that picture becomes. You know, James says, you know. So as we look into the future and, and anticipate more trials because they're so common, our attitude can actually be one of joy because we know that God has a purpose in those trials. We know. We know our trials and tests produce steadfastness. We, we, other translations say it, it produces endurance. No pain, no gain, to use the vernacular. When you endure trials with joy, your spiritual life deepens, your character grows, your trust in, in, in God's love for you progresses. All from trial. So trials are actually a grace and mercy from God for those he loves. That's why we can count them as joy. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he was in trial when he wrote this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He used the miry bog to build up the faith of the psalmist. That's how it works. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, with the trial, he will provide a way of escape that you may endure it, that you may be steadfast in it, that you may grow in your faith, that you may become useful to people around you, that you may bring glory to God, that you may have genuine joy. So let's think about this particular marker that James puts on the table here in verses 2 through 15. Can you say that you are genuinely joyful during trying times? That's the test of faith. If not, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have no faith or that your faith is not genuine. It may mean simply that you need to work on it. You need to strengthen it. That's why God has revealed it to build you up in the faith. I know from time to time we have degrees of success and degrees of failure, but what is the general trajectory of your life? If you could put a line over across the top of all the high points, which direction are they facing, up or down? Is, your, is the tra trajectory of your life one of joy and trials or bitterness in trials, of despair or hope. God is after building you up, friends, in Christ. He wants you to be useful in his hands. He wants you to experience joy. He wants you to, to walk with anticipation into the next trial, wondering how God's going to show himself faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much for these truths in James that you've given us. To give us perspective on what we're facing or what we will be facing. To give us hope in darkness. To give us direction on this maze that we're in, at times it seems. God, we thank you that, that 
you are a loving God who cares deeply about us, who has a purpose behind every trial. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that way. Bring us joy that is not natural, but supernatural. We pray this in your name. Amen.